Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Welcome back to another episode of the Mile 40 Podcast. Thank you for continuing to tune in. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe, whether you're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you have it in you, I'd appreciate it if you could drop a review. Today's guest is Kate Casey. Kate is an unscripted television expert. She's obsessed with great storytelling and stories about real people. She hosts one of the highest rated podcasts in TV and film. Twice a week, she interviews talent, directors, and producers of TV's most popular reality shows, docu-series, and documentaries. She asks about how projects are developed, gets behind the scenes stories, and it helps the audience to see a cast member or subject in a whole new light. With Kate's help, you will never have to worry about what to watch again. Kate, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about you. I've tuned into the show. Um, I, I used to be a big reality TV buff. Um, and just kind of listening to you and, and getting your take gets me gets me amped up. Uh, <laughs> but, but I know that you are a lot more than just a, a podcast host. And I know that you have a story uh, that is sure to inspire many. So let me kick things off by just kind of asking you, uh, first of all, where are you based? I live in Southern California now in Orange County, um, but I'm originally from back East. Got it. Um, and uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Westchester, which is in suburban Philly. And then when I was 14, I went to boarding school in Hershey, PA. And then I went to college in DC, stayed there for a little bit then moved to Virginia Beach, and then I moved to Los Angeles, and then I ended up here in Orange County. Got it. And I know at the heart of your story um, is your experience with boarding school. Mm -hmm. um, so we can start things off there. Why don't you give us some background with regards to um, what led you to boarding school um, and a little bit of information specifically about that boarding school, because I know um, that was a big part of your narrative as well. Uh, I grew up in a family of uh, dysfunctional. My parents were separated by the time I was born. Uh, I had a, an abusive stepfather. And my mother found a school that my older sister went to first called the Milton Hershey School, which is a cost-free boarding school created by Milton Hershey, the chocolate magnet, and his wife. They didn't have any children of their own. They tried desperately, didn't have any success um, in that regard. And they started a school that started out called the Hershey Industrial School. And it was created for orphaned boys. And the deed of trust in instructed that all of the people that were um, admitted, all of the boys that were admitted were from essentially like the Phil not like Pennsylvania. And then over time, the deed of trust changed. Oh, the New York Times interviewed Milton Hershey after his wife had died. And I'd asked him, what do you plan to do with your company? Like, what's going to happen to your fortune? And he said, the heirs of my fortune are the boys of the Hershey Industrial School. So he passes away. And the school's name is changed to the Milton Hershey School. In 1976, they began to admit girls. And they also, um, over time, admitted kids from not just all over the United States, but some throughout the world. And essentially, it went from when I was there, it was only 1,200 students. Now it's 2,400 students under, um, excuse me, between kindergarten and 12th grade. And you have to be financially and emotionally needy. You, you live on campus in student homes. You live in a house with, in my case, it was 16 girls with house parents that kind of overlook everything and make sure that your meals are made. We all had chores, um, a lot of chores. It was very, it, I would hearken into like, um, compared to like the military. Hmm. Um, very disciplined. And the great thing was everybody was from the wrong side of the door of opportunity. So someone like me went there and I spent my entire childhood kind of thinking how embarrassed... Well, I was always embarrassed because I'm like, oh, how do I explain? I have this weird stepfather. And the great thing is you go there and everybody has weird, weird 
weird situations too. I have always been obsessed with people's stories. I watched a prodigious amount of TV. Mm. I read all the time. I was like a weirdo that read Newsweek. I, I just r- loved reading and I loved hearing about other people's stories. So, I mean, to some degree, I think I was always interested in, I was always curious in people as a kid, mm. but I think it kind of, um, I think it kind of heightened at Milne Hershey School because I loved talking to pe- other kids about their crazy families. And it was really kind of like, oh, wait, so your dad's in prison and like your mom lives in the projects or wait, so what happened? And then your aunt is like a drug addict. And and it was kind of great because everybody's kind of trauma bonding there. And there's no judgment there because everybody had like such a weird story. And then the added element was getting to meet some of the parents, like parents weekend or on the weekends would like some parents would come to sign them out for the weekend. It was awesome because it was like, now I can put a face to all these stories. Mm. There was one, uh, there were sisters that were in my one student home and they had a really weird dad and they would tell me these stories that I thought were fantastic. Like one Christmas, he gave them a poster of New Kids on the Block, but he had forged all the band members' signatures on it. And they were so embarrassed. And I was like, this is absolutely hilarious. Um, I think I could... I've learned to just sort of laugh at things for my whole life. I know that as a kid, I kind of used the coping mechanism of me, when it came to like my own family and feeling shame and embarrassment. I started to think of my family members as cast members of like a television show mm-hmm. because I loved television shows with like sitcoms with weird family dynamics and friends. And I like to pay attention to people's picadillos. Yeah. And I thought at a very young age, if people watched a show about this family, meaning the one I'm in, they might find funny in some of the things that I'm embarrassed by. Mm. So it kind of helped me release some of that shame. And I kind of think that while some kids in a similar situation in Milton Hershey would, I mean, if maybe if they hadn't had like as bad of a family as I did, they would find some embarrassment in sharing or, or asking someone more about their personal story. And I just found everybody fascinating. And I've kind of carried that through life. Like everybody has a personal story. There has to be some backstory on something, but also this idea of just like not taking things that are so personally when they have nothing to do with you. Sometimes our parents and the decisions they make, I mean, most times actually have nothing to do with who we are as people. Yeah. Or, you know, just because your parent made bad choices doesn't mean that you will. So um, I, I think I'm very forgiving of people that have come from really like an, a family situation that isn't ideal. Yeah. You know, one of the things that stood out about you was our very first phone call. Um, you know, we were connected through Jonathan Mark, who was a previous guest on this show. And what I loved about that phone call was she seems very interested in the questions that she's asking. Like you, <laughs> you cared. You cared to get to know me at a deeper level. Than yeah. most people that I would speak to for the first time on the phone. And I thoroughly like I walked away from that phone call being like, what a great person. Like this person, oh, thank you. this person really genuinely cares. You kept asking inquisitive questions. You wanted to know more details. Every time I'd share a detail, you dig into it a little bit more. And I asked myself, like, why does she even care? Uh, but it really spoke to who you are as a human and uh, your experiences around the fact that, you know, those details and those differentiators, especially as they pertain to the ups and downs of someone's life, um, they either impact you or they teach you or they give you uh, a more comprehensive insight into how the world works. And I think that is naturally what makes you such a phenomenal podcaster. Um, And um, I just want to, Thank you for that because I didn't tell you that oh, before. Thank this. you. Well, I think that people don't spend enough time really asking questions. And when you do so, the more information you find out gives so much clarity to someone and the choices they've made in the life they've lived. Like, even like starting from a basic question about culture. Mm. Like, I think I asked you a lot about yes. your culture and your wife's culture. The way that someone looks at the world really begins with the way that they are raised, their parents' ideology, their cultures, their traditions. So if you begin with that, 
you can really start to assess how someone looks at their the the world. And then after that, if you move into like where did they go to school and what did they study and what do they like to do and who did they marry and where do they live and do they have children and all those little elements, the more you learn about someone, you have a much broader idea of the way that they look at the world. And when you do that, you learn more about them, but you also kind of learn more about yourself because the more you talk to them and you see the things that you have in common, um, it, it might heighten something in you like, Wow, you know, I really was interested in that part of their story. Maybe I should read more books about that, or that reminds me that I should go travel there, or I should find somebody who does what they do, or all those little elements of somebody are so important to really learning about really other people and yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And naturally, that brings me to a question about your own culture. Like you Mm -hmm. talked about the dysfunction growing up within your own household. And now you're in your developmental years, building your identity in boarding school. Yeah. How did you create your own (laughs) culture? Um, And if you can kind of talk about how now that you're transferring, you know, what you built within your family. It's so funny that I had, it's like you have a pretty good idea of who you are. And the great thing is the older you get, you still kind of get the opportunity to learn more about yourself because I grew up in a family. um, My ancestors are English Irish. Mm. And then... And there's certain things that come with that. Like They're historically very um, tough. Mm. No one wants to hear you complain about yourself. No one wants to hear you talk about yourself. Like keep it to yourself, your problems. Keep your chin. My mother would always say, keep your chin up. That still to this day, if somebody says Mm. that, it makes me want to melt. Like, oh God. so that's just... I grew up in a house like that. Very tough-minded. No one... Again, oh, I, I used to make a joke that uh, if I won the Pulitzer Prize or a gold medal, my mom still would go, someone's better than you. Like, mm. don't, get so, don't get so comfortable. And, I, to, and, and then when I um, became a parent of my first daughter, I uh, put in a Jewish preschool, which I loved. And that's a completely opposite culture. Yeah. Where the parents are so loving, they're so involved in everything. And I used to joke to my friends, they would go, You're always complaining about your parents. Like, uh, my mom calls me, she checks on me. Did you eat? Did you need anything? Did I, you know, I'm like, Why? Like, that sounds amazing because they have the complete opposite. Like, I went to boarding school, I didn't hear from my mom for like three months. Yeah. It's very much like conditioning you to be an independent person. So um, then I went to college with girls who are almost all Irish Catholic. Yeah. So they all grew up the same way. So that kind of like firms up those that belief system. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, here I am raising my own kids. And then I on my podcast, I've been doing this Saturday series where every Saturday, beginning like a couple months ago, I thought after seven years, maybe I should tell more of my personal story so people yeah. kind of understand, you know, why some interviews are more interesting than others. So in that process, I've been learning a little bit more about myself too. And one of the great ironies is that. I have felt like very Irish English, you know, the way I look at the world. And that. I mean, even with my own parenting, like toughen up. I don't like overly praise my kids. Like yeah. I, there is a lot of that, the transfer. But I had this really close friend in, at, at uh, Milne Hershey and a guy, a guy named Dan. And he really was my best guy friend there. I had another friend that died in a car accident, but um, we were really tight mostly because. When we left school, we lived a couple towns over from each other. So it was easy to go hang out. And his family was Irish. So I would obviously not want to be at my own house. So I would spend as much time as possible over at his house. So in some ways, that Irish um, the culture deepened because I was always over there. And then with the great irony of all of this is that um, because of this podcast, like exploring my own dad and wh- where he was during the period that I was growing up, he was yeah. just absent. I he spent a lot of time in Ireland, and I'm not really quite totally sure, but definitely involved in the troubles and mm-hmm. not in a good way. And Dan's father, the reason they went to the Milne Hershey was because Milne Hershey School was because he was one of he's one of five kids. His mother. They all got all the kids and they escaped Ireland when he was five years old to get away from the troubles. 
Wow. So here, like I have, I, I kind of think life sends you these little messages. Like you're at the right place with the right people. And this is all going to make sense sometime later in life. Yeah. I've been recently having an experience where I'm revisiting that question of like, what is my culture? And it's, there's just all these little pings about Ireland and England coming up all the time. And the way that, and I interviewed Dan about it, the fact that we were, there was this magnetism to each other and we were such deep friends. Like he really was like a, like a brother to me. Yeah. And that, I don't know, maybe our father's lives like intersected unbeknownst to the two of us. It's kind of like really weird, but I do think that there are people that are put into your life in situations that are part of some, long journey and it doesn't always make sense but ultimately it will in the end i mean even even things like i was married when i was like 22 for like a year and a half not very long mm. and i'd always been like oh my god what boneheaded decision why did i do that well now it's years later if i hadn't been with him i would never have appreciated how hard my husband works cuz the first guy didn't he had like no work ethic i would have never appreciated my ceo husband there was there would have been no way and then also there was a sequence of events when i lived in virginia beach that not just meeting my one of my best friends but i ended up like having this weird 911 experience if i had not lived in virginia had married him and lived in virginia beach those things never would have happened so yeah. i think we often get frustrated in our lives like why did i make that dumb decision why did i move there why did i take that bad job it's all there's some method to the madness. Yeah. Did you hold any sort of resentment or anger or hatred toward your parents um, at any point? Oh, you know, oh, can you walk uh, us through totally. your yeah? Can you walk us through your emotional cycle there? Um, and maybe when it when you bottomed out the most around it. Um, I, I spent a lot of time angry about it as a, as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I cried myself to sleep all the time wondering like, where is my dad? Why is my mom still married? This man who is so mean to me. Yeah. Um, it, it became a little easier at Milton Hershey because I was surrounded by so many other people that also felt that, that distress of that feeling of loneliness. I would say in my twenties, it became a little bit more about confusion now, I would always joke about it because I think that that's a great coping mechanism. I would write about it. and I mean, I was kind of like a stand-up comedian before I became a stand-up comedian, like joking about it. Um, I think that it really... At the peak of the pain was probably when I had my first child. That's when I thought, I think I need to go to a therapist to work these things out because I don't want this to like impact the way I parent and my relationship with my child. I felt like... The odd thing about becoming a parent is that sometimes, oftentimes, you're confronted with what you lacked. Yeah. So it's like some holes get filled because the love that you have for your child is so deep. But it also rips a lot of new ones open yeah. because you're confronted by what you lacked. And you rethink your relationship with your parents and you end up judging them. But I think that as the kids get a little bit older, like my oldest is um, going to high school. Hmm. I think as they get a little bit older, you that diminishes a little bit the judgment. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because Absolutely. then you have have some life experience under your belt and you go, okay. Well, like even with my Saturday series, like revisiting my my dad's personal story, interviewing my mom and and really kind of putting some pieces together. I, I try to look at his life in broad broad strokes like who was he before he became a parent and what happened to him that he was in a position to walk away from a child yeah and i'm at the point now where i can have conversations with him and i i, I read somewhere that you sort of um the parent that abandons you the, at the age that they abandon you they stay that age for the rest of your life oh my God. so my dad was like 32 when he abandoned me but I was 32 when we, we reconnected. Mm. And when we did, he was so heartfelt and wanting this deep relationship. Mm. But by that time, I'm starting to pull away because I don't need it as much anymore because we were like, I saw him as a contemporary. Yeah. And now as time's gone on and I've had more kids and life experiences, I don't feel that need as much or almost at all anymore to have like his recognition or any of that because... 
once I reconnected, like he stayed that same age. And I feel like I keep evolving and growing. That's such a powerful realization. Um, and just kind of hearing you say that kind of made me like, like gave me goosebumps a little bit to think about that. The idea of them sticking to that age where, where they abandon you. And um, I don't want to d- delve into this part too much, but was there any connection with uh, your relationship with your father and your first marriage, you know, or, you know, were they, you know, your decision to go into that marriage? Oh, I blame that marriage on a television show called a wedding story on TLC. And I'm not kidding you because in college, it was on all the time. And I would just like love to hear people's wedding stories. And I never really thought about like what happens after the wedding. I just thought, oh my, this love story is so cool. And everybody shows up to the wedding. I didn't have an adult in my life who went, yeah. hey, idiot, like, what are your financial plans after this? Like, what's the trajectory? I was too caught up in the wedding, but that's a very infantile early 20s kind of mentality. Yeah. Uh-huh. But again, like, it's fine. Yeah. Like, it, it, you know, it, there was a reason for it. It happened. Uh, and he was a lovely guy. It's just we worked at different speeds for sure. Um, yeah, I think that uh, my dad now is just a complete weird character. I don't look at him like he's my father. I look at him almost like like I do with everybody I interview. You're sort of like an interesting character. And I, I can't take it personally anymore because I just don't... I, when I look at his life, I, I think that he was probably... Com- I, I have said compromised, but really, I think he was radicalized mm. when he went into the military. And I think that... I think he just got radicalized. I don't know. Can you give any insight or share share any insight into given you what you went through and now you have kids. You you have you have five kids, right? Five kids, yeah. You have five kids. I have to imagine at some point one of them asked you about your father. And can you give us some guidance to oh, the they audience? do, absolutely. Yeah. Give some guidance to the audience from someone who might be coming from, you know, a similar situation or just kind of a background that was dysfunctional of sorts as to how to handle and navigate these kind of conversations. I I mean, I can't relate to this directly, but I'm a father, Mm -hmm. but I know I have to have difficult conversations with my child at some point. Well, again, I think culturally, I I've just been raised in it, not just culturally, but regionally. I think Mm -hmm. people from Philadelphia are very direct. Yes. And I just always talk to my kids with honesty and I don't, I I don't dumb it down for them. Mm -hmm. So when they're the age, I would say, you know, I really don't know him. I didn't really grow up with my dad. Mm. He, you know, he wasn't around. I I don't, I don't really know him. Um, If they asked me about my stepfather, I'd just say, I didn't really have a great relationship with him. Mm. But I also say things like, one of the great things about going to Milton Hershey was I met other people who were Mm. great figures in my life. My house father, Tom Howell, was lovely to me and made me feel wonderful. I had an uncle, my aunt's husband, who was a lovely person who, uh, you know, I said, when I walked in the room, Uncle Richard would make the biggest deal. Katie's here. So I would share with them, like, I don't really know my dad or my stepfather was not kind to me. However, here were some people who really changed my life. You know, you you mentioned the decision to go to therapy and it leads me to... Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what she said? She goes, I cannot believe you're not... She goes, I cannot believe you're not a crackhead. And and you know what my reaction was? I know. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. I mean, because... (laughs) I I mean, my natural next question is now that that you're parenting, it's got to be difficult not to compare moments and think to yourself like, I just figured out this this conversation or this situation that my parents didn't figure. It has to feel like a win, like in terms of like being able to navigate a certain dialogue with your children or a different scenario, a scenario of crisis, something where you know your family's trying to mm-hmm. navigate a hardship. And there you are now with a more functional outlook and and you're doing it. Like, are you celebrating that? Or is there something going through your head being like, like, wow. No, like I, I mean, I I have five kids between 14 and five. Yeah. 
I'm in the weeds all the time. (laughs) I don't have much time for introspection. Um, So I don't think that's something that I I act out on all the time. Um, And the truth is, I can be very impatient. I can be very tough. There are things that I wish I was not as a parent. Mm. uh, And I have to work on all the time. But I think if anybody told you, especially if you have a 14-year-old daughter, like I'm killing the game, they're lying. You're kind of figuring it out as you go. Yeah. Um, I do think often like about the pros and cons to growing up in a house with an Irish English kind of way of looking at life. Because um, sometimes I do wish uh, there was somebody who was a little bit more softer around me because I'm very hard on myself. And I can be hard on others too. Like my expectations are probably higher than people might want. Like my daughter had like a cheerleading thing. It was like at the local high school. (laughs) And, you know, she's little. And and there, so the older girls are helping out. And the mom next to me is like, you know, that we watched like the high school girls. And like, she's like, they were excellent. This was it. And I'm like, "Mm, they weren't that good. Mm. So if you're a kid and you're growing up with a mom like that, like my son plays lacrosse. Yeah. And we have kids in the, the carpool and they're just bragging. They're like, they were like on a rec team. And I grew yeah. up playing lacrosse. I played in college. Sure. I used to coach. So the kids are in the car and they're like, you know, I think that I'm better than you and I'm better than this person. And then I turned the car off and I went, um, have at any point now you have to understand they're going into sixth grade. Have yeah. any of you received a phone call for, from some like junior Olympic team? And they're like, no. Has at any point one of the coaches for Notre Dame showed up at your game? Like now I go, you're not that good. Ah. So that's look at the you birth- crushing sixth grade. I, yeah, but like that's the way I grew up, and yeah. in a Phil- in Philadelphia, and now I live in Southern California, where I feel like people like blow their kids up all the time. Like you're so great, and I'm like the reality is, you know, you go down the street and you try out for that team, you're gonna have be- your dreams are crushed because you think you're so awesome. So I uh, sometimes I'm always like, sometimes I'm often like, maybe I need to soften up a little bit. So the thing, very things that I wished I had had, I'm not doing for my kids probably. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Hey all, it's me, Bishoy. As a marathon runner and endurance athlete, I've come to understand the importance of properly fueling your body for preparation and recovery. Every day you get a shot at success. How you start your day typically paints a picture of what the rest of the day will look like. Start your day with a super convenient, healthy, and delicious nutritional win. Meal one by Creatures of Habit. Overnight oatmeal packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, chia, flax, and pumpkin seeds. Vitamin D3, omega-3s, a probiotic, and digestive enzymes made in under one minute. Stop wasting time or worrying about what to eat as your first meal of the day. Start with meal one. Visit creaturesofhabit.com, creatures spelled with a K, and use code MILE40 for 15% off a one-time purchase or the first subscription order payment. You know, one thing stands out in the short period that I've been following you is that your, your standard of excellence, as you just referred to, is extremely high. And that's reflected in the work that you do. Um, and you do that on top of being a mother of five, which we need to continue to remind the audience the fact that, you know, the, you're not just out there crushing the podcasting game. You are working actively as a parent to take care of people, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally um, and on many fronts uh, as well. Um, And again, from the outsider's perspective, you seem to be doing it with with some sort of grace. Uh, But I kind of want to walk the listeners now through a little bit of your trajectory, um, maybe from you know your early twenties to now, because I remember you mm-hmm. telling me about you know a part of that journey as well, and I think it all kind of took form at Hershey uh, with yeah. regards to where you kind of found your power, if you will, um, mm-hmm. and how you adopted it or adapted it um, from that point on. So why don't you walk us from after that ma- that first marriage after to what happened there? Yeah. Oh, um, well, my career, my first chapter career was I did crisis media litigation and media strategy for global law firms. So I would, work right. with, <laughs> well, I would work with lawyers on how to, to build their brand in the press and to create media opportunities for them. So I became co- kind of like a... I could talk a little bit about a lot of things. 
So if I had an attorney that specialized in like securities, hmm. I would be talking to reporters covering the SEC or whatever. But if it was intellectual property, I would uh, always a different thing. I feel like that's a lot of like my job now where I can riff on the Stephen Curry documentary and then go to The Bachelor the next day and then talk about the Jackie Kennedy Onassis book. I, it, it allowed me to kind of finesse through different genres very easily. Um, so I, I did that for like 16 years, so long. So throughout that time, I landed in Virginia Beach because I had married that guy in the military. Um, while I was there, I had a weird experience. Um, on 9-11, my sister was in one of the buildings, the one number seven that was halfway destroyed. Mm. Um, my friend from college was a first responder at the Pentagon. The second, the day after, maybe it was even that, that day, um, they put the pictures of the, the hijackers up on the news. And I immediately recognized them, which I've not shared yet is that I have a photographic memory. So, mm. um, I immediately recognized Mohammed Atta and ended up calling the FBI to report the date that I saw him and I remembered where. It was like wow. one of those experiences that I just, I mean, even today, I can remember it very clearly. And I've been living in this apartment complex and I saw him at this mail depot place, which was across from the runaway bay apartments where I lived. And, uh, I, you know, it was like six months or something later, I saw a news report that Atta had been staying at a hotel that which was like a quarter of a mile down the street from where I had lived. Wow. So that was interesting. And then I years later with the podcast, I interviewed the author of the nine oral history of 9-11. So in order to write my intro for that, I said, let me go back and tell the story about my 9-11 experiences. And I did a search of Virginia Beach and Mohammed Atta. And there was a, an article in the paper, their local paper that it said a tip to the FBI about a sighting of Muhammad Atta on April 3rd of 2001 led to unraveling essentially why he had been in that, that area. So that was my tip. And now wow. later, having friends that worked in the FBI, I found out more that he and another hijacker had spent some time there and they had apparently had plans to do... They were casing the military uh, installations there like Norfolk and... Um, and the amphibious bases. But what they wanted to do apparently was to fill up one of the vessels with explosives and go into the port in Norfolk and blow up military ships. Wow. So, so that was like another one where I'm like, wait, why am I like, I, why do I even marry this guy? Why am I here? This is nothing to do with my career. I'm in like Virginia beach, which makes no sense. Um, but that was like one of those, like sometimes my one friend calls me like the forest gump. It's like, mm. there have been weird things like that where I'm, now, oh, when I was in college, I was an intern um, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. <laughs> yes, you did mention that. Tell us more about that. It was just at the same time. It was bizarre, though. All the like, uh, well, I actually had ended my internship, and that's when the story just start like popped. But she, we were like both interns, and I just had a hard time unraveling it. Just to show you, you your naivety as like a, a kid yeah. in college, I just thought. But I was always there and I had this, you know, a badge on and I felt like I was the one who dropped the, the, the media clips off in the Oval Office and the mm. Executive Office buildings or um, West Wing offices. And I would be there very early in the morning. And I always felt like people were staring at me, you know, obviously, like, who is this person? Why are you here? And I remember at the time thinking, there's no way she could have been in there and people wouldn't have noticed. But then as I got older, I realized power and cover ups and mm. how people are protected. And so at that time in my life, I remember just thinking, there's just, I don't know, they're just exaggerating this. So that was a weird moment in history. I was kind of at the intersection of. Um, so um, after I left Virginia Beach, I, you know, that marriage ended. I moved to LA, continued working. Eventually I met my husband. I don't know, like not that far into living in LA. And uh, my husband started a company and we ended up moving to Orange County. But the bulk of my professional first chapter was working with lawyers. So my expertise really is not just media strategy, but also was crisis, mm. working in crisis. So I feel like I can be very patient with people and I, I'm a very good person to help someone diffuse their anxiety when they're having a crisis professionally and personally. Yeah. 
But you know what's weird? It's not always the same for me. Like I can help other people, but then sometimes when I'm in your own like, crisis, in my own crisis, I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> I wish I could be my own help for myself, but I'm not, you know, I guess a lot of people are like that. But um, I think people hear that maybe in a lot of my interviews too is I think it's important to always find out all the information that's essential to the work of, in crisis is like you have to know all of you go to you're speaking with your client you got to go you need to tell me all the details don't surprise me later i can't help you if you do that yeah so i'm not quick to judge i think because of my professional experience you know i i think that that skill set of being able to handle crisis in, in the way that you're speaking of it's really distinct um and it's hard to come by someone who's on that same level of understanding how to handle and, and manage crisis. So this is a long-winded way of asking you, is there anyone else that you lean on in moments of your personal crisis? Uh, my husband. You feel, yeah. Yeah, and my I, husband is like extraordinarily patient, measured, and fair. And... Absolutely. He's like a great sounding board and everybody loves him. I read this um, Harvard University article years ago about your business acumen. And this oh. author's theory was that how you lead is based on your relationship with your own father. And they said people who were abandoned, mm-hmm. Allah myself, they tend to um, lead by doing more than is expected because essentially you're trying to impress somebody who will never give you the recognition that you want. So like President Obama, like he would go yeah. above and beyond because it's like he wants his father in some way whether that person's dead or alive, it doesn't matter. It's like you're you you've like you've set this precedent in your own head, right? But he, the, the author said that if you have a parent, a father, excuse me, father that is very um helpful and supportive, you tend to lead the same way. And my husband's father was like helpful and supportive and really helped him with his business and walk through things with him. And he leads like that too. Such incredible insight. You know, I was going to ask you, do you think, you know, your ability to handle crisis was founded in your relationship with your father? And you answered the question for me. And um, I, I love the fact that it can go both ways. Uh, around. But I also think, like, even when people come to my house, like yeah. my friends dropped off her son the other day, and she goes, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I hope this doesn't overwhelm you. I went, I lived in a house in Milton Hershey with 16 people. I am used to loud people, like chaos. And I'm not phased by it. Even with yeah. people who are like, Why? How can you have five kids? That's crazy. Yeah. To me, it isn't because I lived in, I grew up in a house with 16 people. Imagine that if you had 15 siblings. Yeah. Like I'm just not phased by stuff like that. I'm interested to ask you, given the fact that a lot of your strength and your capabilities were founded in adversity, how do you approach this with your kids? Right. And someone asked me this the other day, like, are you going to make your kids do hard things in order to, yes, um, I am. to, to strengthen I am. them and to embolden them? You're never yeah. going to be able to replicate your own adversity. But like, where do you draw the line of like, how much do you want them to struggle before you step in? Um, And how do you approach that? Mm. I, I feel like you, the great thing about being a parent is, you know, your child better than anybody else. Yeah. It's, it's like the blessing and the curse. Yeah. Because you often see things that other people don't. And I'm a very tough love person, but I'm very attuned in when it's something they can't handle. Yeah. And so I feel like our job as parents is to be their biggest advocates. And I have this balance where, and I'm not saying I'm doing a great job, but like, you know, one of my kids is ADHD and I know that they've been overlooked. And I, and not only overlooked, but um, maybe people have had lower expectations of them. So I have to balance standing up for them Mm. 
and also giving them enough tough love so that they can rise above um, their own limitations and prove people wrong. So I don't think other people can do that as well if they're not their parent, because I think when you're a parent, you become so in tune to your child's vibrations. Yeah. And what and that's whatever may you became you become a parent, whether or not they're biologically yours, whether or not you adopt them. It could be, you know, you take in a child and they're like 10. You when you are raising a child and you're responsible for their well-being, whether it's their pediatrician appointment, meeting with the teacher, you become so in tune with who your kids are that there's some like thing that we can't really explain and you would only know it if you were a parent that you really become attuned into what your kids need at the right time. Yeah. You know, I I can't help but ask because five kids for the majority of people is, is just, that's a lot to handle. Um, I actually have a a friend of mine, uh, he's one of five and he's the brother. And then he has two sets of twin sisters after him. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. And, um, one of the things that I've noticed over his lifetime is the fact that his parents are in tune with all five of them individually, despite their differences and um, their unique personalities and their unique interests and their different career paths. Um, Was there, uh, I guess a lot of times as parents, they say like one, then two, you know, that's a big jump. But can you talk to us about the jump maybe from two to five? And like, is it the same Mm -hmm. at that point? And and what you can speak to and, and just some general high level parenting guidance there. I think everybody's different. Some people go jump to two to three is crazy or one to two. For me, it was one to two. There was like a hot minute where I was like, wait, like, do they both need a babysitter? Like (laughs) it was like a, but it was a short stint. My friend Kara Weichman would go, yeah, remember? She'll bring it up sometimes. But I think that like after I had three, yeah, I was like, Whatever. You, knew, you knew you had a down pat at that point. I wouldn't say down pat, but definitely like, okay. Like like I said, if the kids bring their friends over, I'm not phased by it. I could have had another child, but my husband was like, you're you're crazy. Like I oh. joke, people ask me, are you Catholic or are you Mormon? And I always say I'm an Episcopalian baby hoarder. I just love, <laughs> I love the noise. Like if a couple asks me, yeah. and I don't know for whatever reason they ask me, like, how do you know that you should have another child? And I always say, just envision what your Thanksgiving table should look like mm. 10, 15 years from now. And if you think it just the way it is is full now, then then you should be happy with that. I might have to cut out this part of the episode so my wife doesn't hear this part. <laughs> <laughs> she came from a big family. Uh, yeah. And the, yeah, the, this is or definitely... I, or I always, <laughs> I always kind of felt like someone feels like they're missing from the party. Yeah. I love that. But a lot of people are like, "Oh, the party's done. Like we close up shop." And I and I always was kind of like, "I don't know. Like so I can we can add just somebody." But listen, there are lots of pros and cons to not having children. There are lots of pros and cons to having a lot of kids. Like there's pros and cons with everything. And ultimately, the only people that can really help you with that choice is your partner. Yeah. Because what works for other people doesn't. You know, like people be like, "Oh, you have five kids. You must be a great parent." Mm, I mean, I'm an okay parent for the kids that I have because they're mine. Yeah. But I wouldn't be able to parent someone else's kid because I don't have the benefit of spending the entire, their entire life with them and like seeing how they cope in different situations. Totally. All right. On to some fun stuff. You run a really cool show, uh, a show that has grown tremendously. Um, I want to talk a little bit about. The birth of the show. Before we even get in there, I need to ask you because you mentioned your affection for TV. Um, was there a show growing up? You know, I could speak for myself. I was a big Friends fan growing up, uh, and then I had a little stint with Survivor from a reality TV perspective. Did you have a show that you grew up kind of like following? Um, I liked sitcoms like The Wonder Years because it was nostalgia. Um, but I think watching the real world really kind of felt and when I watched the real world, I was like, oh, this is just like Milton Hershey, a bunch of people chosen to live somewhere who come from different backgrounds and yeah. like how they work together. I was like, that's Milton Hershey. That's it. 
And I love that show. And I was like, I like this concept of people at a coming of age time and how you strip away your parents' ideologies and you're figuring out who you are. That kind of really set the precedent of like what I think my show really began as and what is at the core of me, what I find interesting. I pitched the idea as a show where I would track down reality stars who had had some time off television to ask how it kind of changed the trajectory of their life. But I also wanted to structure it like a television show with an opening and a closing and yeah. maybe one or two guests. So it was really like a love letter to what started out as reality TV. And then I kind of expanded it to all of Unscripted. And now I do... Actually, I've been doing six episodes a week. Wow. So Monday's episode is What to Watch. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are all interviews. And then the Saturday is my Saturday episode where I would tell more of my personal story or interview people in my life. And I have met so many interesting people that are connected to me in life that I do those on Saturday. So um, the show is always kind of like changing and, and expanding. And like I just had an author on because I have read, I, I thought I've read everything about the Kennedys and watched every docu-series and documentary about him. And he had a new um, book about Jackie Kennedy. So I have him in his ep- episode. So the nice thing is like people who have shows now are kind enough to say, if I had some influence in their life, they would go, I really love how you have kind of shifted the show in accordance with the industry and what I... I feel like I have a good finger on the pulse of like what interests interests people. And I firmly believe that people who watch reality shows also love true crime documentaries. They're also going to like a sports docuseries. And if they don't know yet that they like it, I'm going to be the one to help them see it. I love that. Um, and I see it in motion just again over the last couple of weeks, just following you along and um, seeing how you hit on the various aspects of of just modern culture. Um, what has the show taught you about yourself the most? Um, I think it's taught me that I think we're all interconnected. That's Agreed. Uh, That's an incredible life lesson is that like my audio engineer is like, uh, he calls it like the two degrees of Kate Casey. He's like, wait, how do you know that person? Because as the shows unfold, I'm like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to go ask that person or even the guy I interviewed, the Jackie author. Yeah. Uh, he said, Oh, I wrote a book about Grace Kelly. I said, Well, you know, I named my daughter, one of my kids after Grace Kelly. I said, You know, she's a Philly girl like me. And he goes, I'm a Philly guy. I go, Where do you live? He goes, Westchester. I go, That's my hometown. It's like it always, it like circles back. So it makes me realize everybody's interconnected. Um, it's made me realize that I should have been doing this my whole life. I mean, all the circumstances led it up to it, but. I, when I was a, like a girl and even college, I thought I would run for office, which is insane now that I think about it. But I feel like the best thing that I can do is help people elevate their stories. And in all those things that happened to me in life kind of help set the scene. And I'm really good at getting people to open up. And I think people like me because I take care of them. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly how I felt when I got off the phone with you. Um, <laughs> I got off the phone feeling like, hey, feeling good about myself, being like she she cared. And I was a complete stranger at the time, uh, which I'm sure some of your guests are, are strangers. Um, and that says a lot about you and, and how you're built for this role that you're in right now. Uh, I want to ask... Yep. Sorry, were you going to say something? No, I just no. thank you. Yeah, I want to ask you this question that I've asked some guests, but I think, you know, it kind of fits for you. If you were to publish a book today about your own story, what would you title it? I don't know. I mean, I actually just talked to a book agent this week. I don't know. I think I haven't figured that one out, but I think that it would be a linear anecdote book. I really respond and I feel like my sense of humor and style of writing is very similar to like David Sedaris and Augustine Burroughs, where I just think all things are funny. And my observations and life experiences, I think I could help a lot of people, specifically women, um, navigate very difficult times. So I don't know what the title is yet, but I can definitely kind of think about the structure of it. I love it. And you just you just made me think of something that I wanted to ask you earlier about your your stint. You mentioned a stint in comedy. Can you just talk yeah. about that really quick and give us some insight well, there? I, 
I took classes at the Groundlings Theater. And then it was like one year, I just go, you know what I'm going to do for my New Year's resolution? And I never set resolutions, but I went, it was January 1. I went, I'm going to do stand-up comedy. And by February 8th, I did stand-up at a little bar. And by April, I was opening for somebody at like an improv. I performed at the Ice House, like Howard Theater. I did my own live show. I've always really been comfortable talking in front of people. So I just thought, why not? And I, of all the things that I've actually ever done, I actually think that stand-up comedy is the most easy for me. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, ooh, wow. That, 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 that caught me off guard there. I wasn't expecting you to say that. Do you still throw in a, a little bit of that comedy background in your platform? Are you like dishing it out there and, and kind of adding your own comedic twist a lot of the time? For sure. And especially if like I'm being interviewed by some like a com- more of like a comedian, like on a podcast, but uh, definitely in my storytelling. Um, I think the way I tell stories is is uh, like my friend, Kathy Griffin, like we have kind of like a similar sense of humor and style to it. I was just about to ask you who you would compare yourself to. And that that's a... Uh... That makes a lot of sense now. Now I get yeah, it. We're, we're both like, okay, here's the crazy story. Let me tell you why. And then like go into it. I love it. Um, well, to round things out, look, for the audience, we started out, we heard about Kate's story. She grew up in a dysfunctional home. Her father abandoned their family. She talks about her stint in boarding school and the experience that she had there. But I want to point out that from boarding school to working in the White House, that was a short period of time where you were able to do something tremendous. And then you talk about your various life experiences and the way that there's always been an interconnectedness between you and the people that you come across. You talk about the experiences that you had um, in your first marriage, and then you talk about what you've uncovered about yourself in your second marriage with a partner that you find a lot of stability, security, and just happiness with. And the fact that you are a mother to five child, five children, doing it to the best of your ability and learning every single day. Um, all that on the back of uh, an inception point, which was rather volatile. Um, and so you are the epitome of you know what Mile Forty likes to bring on. If you could, you know, leave us with one last parting piece of wisdom, one thought, one thing that you've learned, or uh, just one item uh, that symbolizes your journey. Um, we'd love to kind of give you the final final chance here to to share with us. I think the best things in life come when you spend more time listening. I love it. Perfectly said. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.